0: Jackson R. McGernsey.
1: And this looks like an awful big crowd. My knees are sure knocking back here. Thank heaven for the table. <laughs> but I want to thank the committee for asking me to speak even if a lot of times I wasn't real thankful for it, but I guess they appreciate me a little bit today. But I wasn't a real grateful member of Al-Anon when I come in. I didn't come into the Al-Anon program willingly or anything. I come in to keep my alcoholic sober. He had sobered up. a bunch of drunks around the table after I'd tried 15 years to sober him up. And I didn't like them one bit. Yet they did what I couldn't do. And I think most of my dislike was jealousy. I kept telling him, if you love us, you quit drinking. And he didn't. And I tried all the little remedies that... Alan's do the tears and this and that and of course the disease of alcoholism progressed in him and while it was progressing in him it was also progressing in me. And it had become my obsession to sober him up. And I worked at that. I he got to where he quit drinking in bars, brought his bottles home, would hide them because I was giving him fits about drinking too much. I would go look for him, pour him out, and uh, then I decided I'd show him how much he drank. So I had a little number 10 wash tub that I set out in the middle of our front yard. Every bottle I found that I dumped the whiskey out of, I put in this tub. <laughs> and I'd say, see how much you're drinking? Aren't you ashamed of yourself with how much you drank? Well, we just ignored him and go on and get another bottle. And so another one would be added to my collection. When I got the tub nice and rounded up, and I was really trying to embarrass him to quit drinking. And he uh, went out and he broke all the bottles that was in that tub right in the middle of the front yard. So all I had was a front yard full of broken glass instead of grass. So that that didn't he still went on drinking. And I still looked for the bottles and found them and one day I found a bottle of his and I dumped it out and then I had a brainstorm. I I filled the bottle with vinegar. Put it back in his hiding place. And then that was a lot of fun because I had to see what he did when he drank that. Of course, I didn't dare tell him or let him know I was watching, him, and he about choked to death, and he didn't dare give me anything because he'd admit to them that he was drinking. And he kept telling me he wasn't drinking.
0: <laughs> so,
1: we each one had our own little secrets that we was running around to hiding. When we, we did, we played those games like that. He'd take the car and go down and get him a bottle, go down around the river. And pass out right on the curve of the river down there there was two big old cottonwood trees just wide enough to get a car in between that was always his favorite parking place I don't know whether he thought that tree those trees would hide him or what but that he'd go right in between those two trees He could get the door open about so far and then he'd pass out there of course in Guernsey everybody would go down around the river that was uh, kind of the week drive around Guernsey. And anybody seen parked down there would come in and say, Range Park down to the river. Might be school kids, it might be garage mechanics, it could be the city cop or the highway patrolman, county sheriff. I've had them all at my door telling me that he was passed out of the river. They'd take me down so I could bring him home so he wouldn't be driving drunk. They were trying to do me a favor, but that favor when I get down there, here he was passed out and under the steering wheel, and you get this door open so far, and of course I'm not very little, and that was quite a feat to squeeze in here, get him squeezed over so I could drive him home. Many a times I just wanted to shut the door, put the car in here, and push the car in the river. And I, I'm i not sure whether it was God's will that I didn't do that or whether it was the fact that if I pushed the car in the river, I wouldn't have no transportation. <laughs> so, one way or the other, he was saved for the bell lap type. And that didn't work. as one time, I thought, well, I can't shame you. I can't talk any sense into you. And we were arguing and... I was in the kitchen door, and that door in the kitchen that everyone has, it's a junk door, I had a hammer in there, and the argument progressed a little bit farther, and what? And he kind of shoved me a little bit or something, and I had the hammer out and hit him in the head with it. <laughs> I split his head open, and he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, well, look what you done. What are you going to do about it? And I said, not a okay. thing, and walked out. Well, our older son took care of his dad. Kind of looked his head over to see what he could do and patched him up. Seeing that he got to bed, and he still—that didn't knock any sense into him either. He's still right. He tried to freeze himself to death. A fall in a well. He thought he fell in the Flat River. When I went down that particular time he wouldn't ride home with me when I went and got the car he decided to walk and he was kind of cutting across and uh, west edge of town is what they call the acres but they had their own wells and stuff and he was cutting across and he fell in one of the wells at one of the places there and it was just due to the their dogs, and kept barking and they couldn't shut him up and they finally went out to see they found him he had got up out of the way well, finally, but he was just like a big frozen icicle laying out there in their road. <laughs> they called the rescue unit there in Guernsey. There's no doctors in Guernsey. We had to go to Wheatland or Torrington for to the doctors. And they called him there, and I heard the sirens go off. And I seen him go and rest of town, and I thought, oh, God, what'd you do? Stagger in front of a car? I better go see he killed himself, or they killed him, or what, Then I got down there, and they was putting him in the unit, I didn't ask how he was, I says, before you take him over there and put him in the hospital, give me his billfold, I've got bills to pay, that was how caring I was, uh, you can see who I was looking after at that time, it sure wasn't my alcoholic, but we progressed in those things, and it kept getting worse. I got to the place I had went to work to where I could keep food on the table for me and the boys and keep the rent and the utilities paid. I had went to work uh, because he was drinking. If he had a job, he took the money to drink with. And I got to where I hated to go home from work. 'Cause it, the house smelled like an old stale bar. And it didn't seem like anything I could do. I could it almost got to where it wasn't home anyplace, but it was what I had to call home. And this one particular day I'd come home from work, really dreading it, and if I'd had any place else to go, I would have went. He had been drinking for a month. This drinking. I mean, he would come to enough to pass out. He was drinking to exist at that time. He was a sick man. But when I come home that day, that morning when I left to work, he was passed out in the bed. He looked like a skeleton laying there in the bed. When I come home, he was bloated up. He looked like he weighed 300 pounds, and he was black. I knew at that time he had drank himself to death. I knew he was dead, so I thought, well, I'm not going to call a unit to take him. I will call uh, Morgan Wheaton to come and get him. And I was trying to getting up enough courage to see if, if I could see how cold and stiff he was, kind of how long he'd been gone. And he groaned. I lost when when he groaned my thought was you so-and-so if you want to kill yourself I will help you (laughs) and I had the pillow there beside him a straddle of this this nice little person a straddle of this big bloated up thing You know you could just see a big beach ball bloated up and me setting a straddle with the pillow on his head Just him and I in the house and this voice said Maxine you know what you're doing? Can you handle it? And murder popped into my mind. And I thought, no, I might fool somebody, but I will know me. I will be locked up one place or the other, either behind prison bars or in a nut house, because I could not live with that on my conscience. I threw the pillow on the floor and walked out of that room and I thought, If you're going to die a drunk, you're going to do it on yourself. You aren't pushing me no farther. And they've always told me, after I got into the program, you had to let go and let God. That day, God intervened in what I was doing. I didn't let go. Well, in one way, but he had a lot to do with it. But three days after that day, our phone rang. And there was a man asked for Wayne. I handed it to him. I wasn't talking to him. I was still scared to death of what I had about done. I was scared to look at him or talk to him for fear I would snap again and go ahead and kill him. And I handed the phone to him and it was a gentleman calling him about AA over in Wheatland. They were starting a group. They wanted him to come. He says that he had never heard the man's name or never seen him before. So for me, that was one of the first miracles I could really, when I got to thinking halfway straight and accepting the programs, the 12-step programs that they have offered us, I realized that that was a miracle, the starting of our life together. It was that day he asked, when they were, he said he couldn't make it on Tuesday night. That was on a Sunday. He said it, he couldn't make it then, but he would make it the next week. He did go over to He went over there and started into AA. And as I said, that was when he sobered up for them drunks around that table. It was something I had wanted and had tried, but that when, when I got it, I was mad. Does that tell you the disease of alcoholism in family? I had got what I wanted and still mad because I didn't do it. Then he went over there to those meetings. For a long time there was a new group trying to start and he'd come home from them and he'd say, Max, they say they're open meetings who would like to have me bring you. I'd say, that's your problem, you take care of it. And so he did. And he was, I could see something in his eyes that I hadn't seen for many a year. And I liked it, but yet I resented it because somebody else had done it. But he kept going, and he kept asking me when coming out over there, he asked me. He'd been going for about two months, and he kept asking me when coming out over there, he asked me. He'd been going for about two months or a little better, and finally I thought, well, he's sober, he's looking good. If I go with him, he won't stop and take a drink before he comes home. So I started to go into those open AA meetings. And when I went over there, they were talking, they were laughing, they were a bunch of different people than what I thought they would be. But um, Wayne was not talking, everybody was, they'd say their name and if they were an alcoholic and they would tell some part of their life, and Wayne, if they called in, he'd say, I'm Wayne, I'm an alcoholic, and I haven't got nothing to say. Well, they made the sad mistake of asking me. I uh, kind of let them know that I was there to see that Wayne stayed sober. And I kind of got the impression that for him to be sober, they had to know what he had done. So I proceeded to tell them what he had done. His deeds, misdeeds, and whatnot in relation to those 12 steps they called the tools of the program. So I thought, well, if those tools work for them, I can use them and get him sober a lot faster. So the first time I went through the steps, I went through them. yep, he's powerless over alcohol. His life is unmanageable. That was that. That wasn't hard at all. I couldn't see why they was making such a big deal out of that but it didn't do him good again. All he done was got mad. We fought going back to Guernsey. And every time I would do a step for him, to get a little deeper, he'd get a little madder. <laughs> so, about 12 meetings down the road, I had went, I was doing my 12 step work for him real good, you know. And he told me that wasn't the way that it worked. Then so we got into one, good screaming match coming back from here and ordinarily i was not a person to cry but that night for some reason i started bawling coming home instead of fighting back with him i started bawling and he, he got in the house and flipped on the tv and flopped in the chair and i went to the kitchen balling. here was this voice again and it says maxine have you ever stopped to ask for help? For you? Why, well, didn't need no help, he was drunk, it wasn't me. But yet, I was walking back out of the kitchen and he went and stood right in front of him. And I said, wait I said, I'm sick. I need help, I can't take this anymore. If you can't help me, put me somewhere where they can. And he looked at me, just dumbfounded he said max you know what you said i said yes yeah. i said i need help i can't do this anymore you've got to help me or put me where you can and so he had the most dumbfounded look on him he didn't look that dumbfounded when he hit him in the head with the <laughs> it was a bigger shock i got to him quickly by saying that i needed help and we had had enough of the program that he, he said, well, he said, let's go in the kitchen and sit down and talk. He said, we've got to be honest and open with each other if we're going to make this work, Max. So we went to the kitchen. We sat there practically the rest of the night. That night, I think, for me, I did my first this step with my spouse, unknowing that I was doing it for me. But when we, when we finally shut up and went to bed for about an hour straight before we got up, I had to get up to go to work. I felt such a relief by telling him that what I had done. I wasn't carrying the world on my shoulders anymore after that and i wasn't so resentful at the AA for showing him up and i could let him have his meetings over there and i could gain a little bit of something from those meetings we went over to those meetings finally they drifted down after a little over a year it drifted down before it was just wayne and i drove over there opened the meeting halls up there drove back Winter come along, and the weather in here. So we decided we could do the same things in our own living room if nobody was going to show up. So Wayne went without his AA meetings for a little over two years. After that, every once in a while he'd get up pretty tight. We'd go to Cheyenne to the Three Hundred Club on a Saturday night. They were open meetings too, and we both gained an awful lot from those meetings that was the only ones we could find around us at that time but it was a real eye-opener and we both really got a lot out of those meetings when we did go to Cheyenne and then they started the group in Torrington but the group in Torrington when they started those meetings they were closed meetings I couldn't go he said that was for the only meeting they did. They had the last meeting of the month. It was open, and I could go to them, and that was... I had heard of Al-Anon before, but I didn't know what it was, and I didn't ask. Because that... I thought it was just a nice way to say you was a wife of that drunk, you know. Yeah, and just, I, I am an Al-Anon, and they said they were there. Well, I said, I'm an Al-Anon, you know. But I didn't know what Al-Anon was. But when I got to that first open meeting in Toynton and the lady, she told me they was having al meetings there in Toynton and I'd like to have him come. And I didn't need them. He was sober. I didn't need Alan. And I found first one excuse and then another excuse. I found excuse for a year that he went to Toynton to an open air meeting and being a new group, and the Al-Anon in Torrington was new, and they were financially struggling, trying to keep... They would find meeting places, and then something would happen. They'd sell a building or something else. They was just moving. They had said at one time in the Al-Anon meeting there that they had run out of meeting places or not the funds to rent the place, so they were meeting out in the car around the park there in Toynton and telling about them women sitting there holding hands in the car saying the Lord's Prayer when they closed and the city top coming up shining lights and having them sitting there holding hands
0: <laughs>
1: in an al meeting that is going to any length that was before my time in the al but that was kind of what those those ladies in Toynton were dedicated to doing was for that meeting to go to any length for their meetings. But I finally run out. They had run out of places and we had an opportunity to, for this house. That they could have it if they paid the utilities and fixed it up it however they wanted it. They would not charge them any rent, but they, anything they wanted them to the build to the house, they had to do it. Well, it was just a godsend thing for those two struggling groups in Torrington. So they took it and then finance is low, I think maybe there was three of them going to the AA meeting. on I think had a few more. I don't know how many was in there because that was before my time. But they took that and they thought, well, if we meet one night a week, the same night, they had the living room kitchen with the dining area that they could use with the coffee for the coffee and in between the two. And if they both met the same night at the same time, they would just pay the utility bills for one night, just heat it up one night and electricity and maybe they could make it. So that's what they did. That took all my excuses away from not going to al Because when he was going down to that meeting, I said I didn't ride after night. I didn't want to come by myself through the winter months. I didn't do this. All those excuses you know that a good al can find. And I found them all. But there again, God stepped in. He knew I needed the al program for me to find my peace of mind and serenity. Things were better in our family, but Moon was getting better so much faster than I was, I had lost my whipping post because he quit drinking, and I could not understand why our life hadn't gotten better. I just knew if he quit drinking, everything would be fine. He'd quit drinking he still had life's problems. And I didn't have nothing to blame him on. So consequently, I was getting sicker. But I went to that al meeting. And when I ran out of excuses, he was going down. I rode down with him. And I rode down. I thought, well, I haven't got no excuses. And if I go, he'll stay in that meeting. And it's was better than what it was before. So I'll go to this Al-Anon and set through that for an hour a week. And that first night, going back to Green Bay, he said, What did you think of Al-Anon? And I said, Well, I guess it's okay if you want to go listen to a bunch of old ladies cry over split beer. That was, uh, I, w- I didn't hear one thing. They said nothing pertained to me. That was them, not me. <laughs> But I went back with after week. They loved me. They accepted me as I was. They kept telling me I was sick. And if I would use those 12 steps for me, I might find some serenity that they had. But I couldn't see where they pertain. But gradually, a little bit of it wore off. And I could see what they were talking about. So I Tentatively, kind of stuck my toes in, you know, on the first step. Well, yes, I was powerless over so the alcoholic. I didn't sober him up. But I couldn't quite yet admit my life was unmanageable. But then it kind of, all come back home that it was unmanageable. And then he had told me one night he was going to stop and get a haircut. And there in Guernsey, we have one barber who was an older gentleman and he loved to visit. He'd cut two or three strands of hair and go around and talk for five minutes and go back and cut two or three more strands of hair. So you can imagine how long it would take to get a haircut when you stopped there to get it. And that particular night when he stopped to get it, he had told me that morning he was going to stop and get a haircut. But when he got in there, there was two or three old-timers in front of him, and I mean the older people, and, of course, that made visiting twice as long him, because they had a lot more to talk about. When we usually got home around 5 o'clock, well, 5.30 come, and I was getting a little uneasy. 6 o'clock come, I knew I had spaced out that he had told me. It never once dawned on me. I got to watching out the window, that old me again, watching out the window to see when he was coming in, see how he was going to be. I knew he'd stopped. I knew he'd had that slip. And I sat there and I waited. And the longer it got, 6 o'clock come, our youngest son was still at home in high school. He'd come home from basketball practice. He stepped in the door and he was. His yes, face He looked at me mm, and dad? I said, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. He says, is he drinking? I said, I don't know. I haven't seen him. What do you think? Of course, I very definitely left the impression that I knew he was drinking, but I didn't say he was.
0: <laughs>
1: but they say actions speak louder than words. And he, she, he sure took it that he was, and he went back to the bedroom. About 7 o'clock, when I seen him pull up, and he came in and walked in from the garage, and I thought, well, he doesn't look like he's been drinking. But I was still, I was good for him. I was mad. I was moved. That old Maxine again, ready to light in the middle of him with both feet. He opened the door, and I said, where the hell have you been? He said, well, maybe i better back out and throw my hat in. He said, I told you I was going to get a haircut. Well, I didn't have another thing to say. That was the first time it dawned on me that he had told me he was going to get a haircut. And he had the haircut, and he wasn't drunk. And Rick came out of the bedroom and he looked at me and he said, Mom, what to you do that for? I didn't have, I couldn't even, I didn't have anything to say to him. I didn't, it was then that I knew I had to work those 12 steps in Al-Anon for me. That if I wanted to progress and be part of that family, instead of having them mad at me all the time, and me real uncomfortable and angry while they could laugh and have fun I had to work those 12 steps so I started working and I could admit but then I always justified they told me I could not justify I had to accept my part acceptance of what I had offered my share of that disease of the alcoholism and i was working it pretty good into that time when we got into some of the state functions and of course i was going right along with him. and i went to a state function and uh, going down there and they said well you go to the meetings you be our group representative and you bring back what they say about meetings um, uh Well, I guess I can go listen to them. I'm going to sit through it where I can tell them what they said. And I went to a couple of free meetings and then, uh, this is getting the Alamon District started up. And they needed a district representative for our area. And they said, well, you're the only one from your district. I guess you will be the representative. And I uh uh-huh, well, maybe that does make me somebody. I will be representative. And then with that saying, nobody. what are you doing? Get some interest and involvement with your good in your district. I tried. Nobody listened. <laughs> I, I was district representative for three years. I said, you rotated it out in three years. I couldn't get nobody else to take it, so I had it another three years. I think God they thought I was a real slow learner at the end of my six years I had a spark or two of service work in the district I had one or two interested in uh, I had learned maybe enough that I could make it a little interesting for somebody to want to do something in the district and we got the district representatives and uh, but now I can go sit out well, just after that, they was at the state meeting, and they needed, they were electing officers in the state. And everybody was a-setting back, nobody was volunteering to do this and do that, and finally when it came up that they was needing somebody to run for the state treasurer, and nobody was saying, I oh, thought, well, I'll break the ice, if I say I will. No, it was secretary first, and then there was another lady and. She got it. I thought, oh boy, I don't have to do that. And they were going through the same progress with the treasurer. And I said I would run. Somebody else said they would run. But when the vote was cast, I got state treasurer. I was the state treasurer. So I was pushed a little bit farther into the service work. And every time I have did the service work, I have gained, but I have not willingly taken a step into service work without um, without that push. Somebody, pardon me, say do it. When I got through with the service work, they needed an institution coordinator, and through the institution work, they had in the meantime had set the um, Women's Correctional Center at Lusk. They had built a new facility there and moved them up there and kind of pushing to take the a- 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 and Al Anon program into the Women in the Center there. And we was going into there quite often. And they couldn't have meetings without sponsors into the uh, Women's Center there in Musk and they had staff sponsors and they weren't getting a lot of cooperation the girls did not feel comfortable talking with staff because they was afraid to open up for what they said would go on their records they could be um, written up for maybe something they said some feeling that they had that they had opened up into one of the meetings or the other area or alamon so the deputy warden had called who had up there pretty faithful and she had called me and myself up and wanted to talk to us and so the next time we went up and she wanted us we would come a little early to visit with her so we did and she wondered if we would be the sponsors for a an al in the center there if we would come up once a week to let them have so they could have their meetings. They would do it on a trial base. They could not have a meeting without a sponsor, and staff sponsors was not working real good, so we started up there, and it has been such a rewarding position, and so much. I have gained so much from the women, the girls up there at that center, and their trials and tribulations, and what they have done, they I have been so good to ask them, the girls so oh, we don't know what we'd have done without you. But so it was, they have opened my eyes and let me see what I could have been, where I could have been. If it hadn't have been for God in the AA and the online program, it is really rewarding to see the girls work the program uh, And uh, when they come out, it you have a few that use the program, but I think we have that on the outside, too. But the ones that are sincere and work that program and see them come out and try to work and make their lives better with the 12 steps of the program that we have today is so rewarding and to feel you get a call from one of those girls who thank you and are so appreciative for what you did for them, that sometimes I feel real guilty because I didn't do half for them what they have given me back in return. The program says you have to give away what you want to keep. And through going up there and sponsoring, I have found the meaning of giving away keep it has been so rewarding and so and it's just overwhelming of what the program has given me back today I wonder why I had fought it so long and so hard and why I waited so long if I would known what it could be good and
0: then